Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. It's my pleasure to introduce Roshan De Silva Wajaratne, who graduated from the School of Oriental African Studies at the University of London. He's been at Griffith for 15 years, published extensively on Sri Lanka, particularly with reference to the intimate relation between Buddhism and the history of state formation. In 2014, he published Nation, Constitutionalism, and Buddhism in Sri Lanka. With Routledge, he's currently engaged with civil society groups in Sri Lanka with respect to the ongoing debate about constitutional reform there. And today, the title of his talk is Dominion Status, Compromised Independence, and Sinhalese Buddhist Nationalist Responses, 1931 to 1956. Thanks very much for the invitation. So I'll probably speak for about half an hour, maybe, I think, and then... We can have a conversation. Because I think I was just telling um, Andrew that there are some very strong parallels with developments in Burma, also in the same year, in 1956, which was the year of the, you know, the allegedly of the of the Buddha's birth anniversary. So it was a very symbolic year, uh, both in um, in Ceylon, as it was known until 1972, as well as in in Burma. More recently, there are been a kind of an intimate nexus of uh, links between monks in Burma. Sri Lanka, as well as in, uh, in Thailand, as well, particularly a monk of uh, the Burmese monk uh, who had uh, travelled, uh, who was on the cover of Time magazine in 2014, an issue of which was actually banned in. You would obviously know it was banned in Burma, but it was also banned by the Sri Lankan authorities he as well. To be the Bin Laden of Burma. <laughs> the Time magazine cover was fantastic. I thought the new face of terror. I think was the cover. He'd just been awarded uh, an award by the Dhammakaya Awards in Thailand as well. And he'd been in Colombo and literally provoked an incident. It was an Islamophobic sort of speech that he'd given for the Buddha Balasena, which is, translates roughly as the Buddhist power force in 2014. So I think there's a pertinent connection. Anyway, paradoxically, I've got a few pointers up there, and that's just a basic demographic breakdown of the island. And I'll scroll down as I come to certain key words in what I'm saying. I'll scroll downwards so that uh, you have an idea of what they are. Paradoxically, it is possible to trace the origins of Ceylon's descent into communalism in the language of million liberalism in the post-colonial period to the recommendation of the Donamore Commission that communal representation be abolished in the interests of progressive liberal constitutional development in the colony. Such representation had been the basis on which popular participation in the administration of the colony had expanded since the mid-19th century. The Commission report described communalism in Sri Lanka as a canker on the body politic, poisoning the new growth of political consciousness and effectively preventing the development of a national corporate spirit. The report endorsed by the Colonial Office postulated that for Ceylon, there could be no hope of binding together the diverse elements of the population in a realisation of their common kinship and an acknowledgement of common obligations to the country of which they are all citizens. So long communal representation with all its disintegrating influences remains a feature of the constitution. As constitutional historian Harshan Kumara Singham observes, the British judged the abolition of communal representation would foster modern democracy along European lines and remove the shackles of Eastern parochialism identified with communal identity. They were imagined as a logical continuation of the reforms initiated by the Cobra Cameron reforms of 1832. And there you have a reference to 
the corporate Cameron reforms, which were part of the wider commission of Eastern Inquiry set up by the Colonial Office to look into the administration of three colonies, the Cape Colony in South Africa, uh, Mauritius, as well as Ceylon, and they winded their way to Ceylon in 1829, and I think a number of commissioners had either died or had, you know, retired in the process of that, in that ten-year period. The Colbrook Cameron reforms were thoroughly Benthamite in character, the state consciously moving towards centralising both the judicial and civilian administration of the island. The reforms took away from the governor his near-absolute powers and set up a unified structure for the administration of the colony. By both rationalising and centralising colonial administration, the state also signalled a shift in its relation to Buddhism and forms of legitimacy associated with pre-European Buddhist kingship, particularly pre-British Buddhist kingship. Relying on Buddhist forms of authority had served the early phase of British rule well. As for this new logic of colonial governmentality, its purpose was not one of eliciting obedience from the rule, but rather inserting a set of ideas with a view towards altering the purposes of colonial rule by intervening in and transforming the social and the economic, as well as the uh, judicial, as transpired. These reforms were motivated by a Whig concern for the expansion of the colonial public sphere and a concomitant increase in the democratic accountability of the state through, for example, the establishment of executive and legislative councils that would, at least in the case of the latter, admit native members. The public sphere would be guaranteed through the great Whig principles of an English education and a free press, as well as a number of institutional changes that would hold the state to account at the court of public opinion. The paradox of the Colbert Cameron reforms, which had consolidated a process of desacralization, the state severing its institutional ties with Buddhism, began to reveal itself bottom-up dynamic by which Sinhalese Buddhism was subjected to a process of secularization provoked the wholesale nationalist revaluation of Sinhalese Buddhism. What appeared to be intrinsically irenic, a set of practices at ease with cultural difference, would give way to the sectarian, an inevitable dynamic once older, more hybrid Sinhalese Buddhist practices were subordinated to a modernist lens, whose positive epistemology reduced Sinhalese Buddhism to a set of all-or-nothing propositional values. The process of resacralization transformed the emergent Buddhist revivalist movement of the late 19th century into a nationalist movement in the early 20th century. This was aided by the proliferation of lay Buddhist associations such as the Buddhist Theosophical Society, which the emerging Sinhalese Buddhist bourgeoisie patronized. Powerfully, the Buddhist cultural revival borrowed a colonial historiography that was informed by contemporary studies in European Indology and evolutionary theory by which Sinhalese Aryans came to be opposed in absolute terms to Tamil Dravidians. Language and race were conflated so that eventually the smaller races recognized by the British as separate entities were subsumed into the Tamil singular divide. Taken together this created a major paradox at the end of the 19th century. On the one hand in terms of citizenship all should be equal but at the same time British rule substantialized difference, formalizing cultural markers and making it the basis for political representation through the emerging sort of pattern of communal representation that flowed from the Cobra Cameron reforms. And communal representation was part and parcel of the process of representation until the uh, 1920s. This begs a question. How could the Donnemore Commission in 1929, chaired by the Scottish peer Lord Donnemore, have so misrecognized the tentative capture of a Sinhalese Buddhist political imaginary by an increasingly sectarian Buddhist nationalist idiom by the early 20th century. The 
Commissioners had envisaged that government by executive committee would be a natural progression of the Benthamite reforms of 1832, in a direction now motivated by democratic logic, contra the elite communal representation that had evolved since the 1830s. They did not anticipate that democratic politics would articulate its force along the axis of a thoroughly modern Sinhalese Buddhist racialized reimagining of the pre-European past. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, the commissioners seemed to believe that religion could be relegated to the private realm. Thus, universal suffrage was to have an educative or rather a governing effect on the conduct of the political elites. It was envisioned that by making the Sinhalese Buddhist political elites reliant on Sinhalese Buddhist masses, the former would refashion the political sensibilities of the latter in the direction of acquiring a more democratic egalitarian ethos. However, opposition from the Kandyan National Association to the Indian Tamils of the Tia states gaining the vote forced the colonial government to modify their proposals for a universal franchise, and by an ordering council, the majority of the Indian Tamils were disenfranchised. Thus, the introduction of the Donnamore Constitution enabled an increasingly racialized Sinhalese Buddhist nationalist narrative to find a political platform in the form of the State Council, which subsequently confirmed Sinhalese Buddhist political dominance by the mid-1930s. The institutional forms of a secular rational order actually enabled Sinhalese Buddhist ethno-religious sensibilities to intensify. Self-government under the Donnamore Constitution consolidated the centralization of power in the hands of the Sinhalese elites of the Ceylon National Congress, but it also generated the fateful consequences of rule by number, in which rule by the majority was simply normalized. Against this background, the conditions of possibility of Tamil and other minority subordination and its reproduction were put in place. Rare attempts at reaching a common position between the Sinhalese and Tamil political leadership were often undone by pressure from popular Sinhalese Buddhist opinion. While activist monks and the largely LSC and Cambridge-educated Ceylonese left led popular campaigns against the colonial state, the leadership of the Ceylon National Congress remained loyal to the crown. This was in stark contrast to the Quit India movement that had emerged in 1942 across the Pol Strait. However, from the vantage point of the State Council, Sinhalese leaders were adept at appropriating the nationalist narrative circulating widely in the public sphere in both Sinhala and English. In 1936, Solomon Bandaranaike gave voice to a trope that became integral to the dichotomy that structures the Sinhalese Buddhist nationalist imagination. He suggested that Sinhalese history was a record of constant wars. They either killed each other or killed the Tamil invader. Dutugemenu, he said, did not practice Buddhist ahimsa when it came to getting rid of the Tamil king Alara. From the late 1930s, Sinhalese Buddhist leaders began to adopt an increasingly ethno-chauvinist tone, and Bandaranaike would reap the rewards in the 1950s as myth became an increasingly lived reality. The historian of 1930s Ceylon, Jane Russell, notes that Dutugemenu Elara's story refracted the whole tenor of Sinhalese Tamil relations in Ceylon in the Donamal period. It was the fulcrum on which both the past and the present <coughs> rested, and would form the foundation upon which competing claims for power and resources between the two communities would manifest themselves after independence. Due to the State Council's wartime corporation, in July 1944, London announced the establishment of the Solbury Commission, chaired by the Tory peer, Lord Solbury to look into further constitutional reform. In terms of its democratic reach, the Sobri Commission took evidence from all over the island. It was then not a wholly elite exercise. British interests aligned well with the Chief Minister's interests. 
The Chief Minister, the Conservative Don Stephen Senanaika, had cultivated an aristocratic English persona. He and his government was committed to an orderly transfer of power that in the short term at least would limit the capacity of the well-organised left to appeal to popular rural and working class sentiments against what would prove to be in the tumult of the mid-1950s an unpopular anglicised elite. In what was, however, a prescient decision, the Commission <coughs> took evidence from the leadership of the Tamil and other minority communities, but it failed to take the concerns of the Tamil leadership seriously. Consistent with the democratic logic of the universal franchise of the Donald reforms, Lord Sobri believed that the fears of G.G. Penumbalam's Tamil Congress were grossly exaggerated. The Commission saw Penumbalam's request for specific constitutional protection as running counter to the liberal democratic ethos of the Donald constitution, and to the tradition of English public law, which was hostile to formalise and justiciable rights. In this task of ensuring continuity with British constitutional principles, Senanaika was ably assisted by senior constitutional adviser, Sir Ivor Jennings, who had arrived in Ceylon in 1942 from the LSE. Jennings goes on to draft the Solbury Constitution, the, first, uh, uh, the Dominion Constitution of 1948. Influenced by Jennings, the Solbury Commission brushed aside the petitions of the Ceylon Indian Congress about the disenfranchisement of the Indian Tamils that the Ceylon National Congress had engineered in the early 1930s. The Commission was unconcerned that the future status of the Indian Tamils could become a cipher through which Sinhalese nationalists would begin their assault on the minorities in general. Much of the blame for this lays at the door of Jennings, whose influence was such that he shielded the Ceylonese elites from constitutional debates in India where through the American-trained B.R. Ambedkar, a rights-based jurisprudence would combine with the Westminster system of government as part of India's post-Dominion Republican settlement. As the Cold War gathered pace, the left movement in Ceylon gathered popular support. Senanaika stressed the extent to which he was a safe pair of hands with respect to guaranteeing both British economic and military interests in the island. Writing to Lord Solbury, Senanaika complained that if power was not transferred soon, he would lose his majority to the communists, who had already published a complete rejection of dominion status and who believed in withdrawal from the Commonwealth. By late 1945, Lord Sobri wrote to George Hall, the new cabinet, the new colonial secretary in Ackley's Labour government, of the dangers of neglecting Senanaika's claims to office, as the alternative was a left-led government that advocated republicanism. Senanaika's promise of a friendly dominion ally to British military and economic interests in South and Southeast Asia persuaded Attlee's government of the merits of Dominion status. In June 1947, London announced that Ceylon was to receive fully responsible status within the British Commonwealth of Nations under a unitary state model, but with a bicameral legislature. Senanaika became Prime Minister, and Dr. N.M. Pereira, who had been Harold Lasky's doctoral student at the LSE, the leader of the Trotsky at Equal Society Party, became, somewhat ironically, the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. The general election campaign of 1947 was tellingly significant for it anticipated the cultural axis on which Ceylonese politics would take shape from the mid-1950s, a process that would lead to Ceylon becoming a republic in 1972. What was striking about the general election campaign of 1947 <coughs> was this, it witnessed an early foray into electoral politics by the modernist Buddhist reform movement that the Buddhist reformer Anagarika Dhammapala had forged in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, Dhammapala had sort of befriended uh, Madame Blavatsky, who was residing in Ceylon at the time, and it was Blavatsky who took Dhammapala to Bodh Gaya in, in India, and who had encouraged him to learn Pali and Sanskrit. 
etc. So it was that he was a product in many ways of the Buddhist theosophical movement uh, in Ceylon in the late 19th century. The monks associated with Dharmapala's reform movement gave expression to the Sinhalese Buddhist nationalist sentiments that Dharmapala had evoked as the core of his project of Sinhalese Buddhist cultural renewal. In the election campaign, they actively campaigned against what the leader of the Communist Party, Peter Kuhneman, called Ceylon's sham independence, the left forging an uneasy alliance with the monk activists, which by the 1960s would fatally compromise their ability, that is the left's ability, to address the Tamil working class. By the late 1940s, and just before dominion status was uh, granted, radical monks were calling for full independence from the British crown. This was, as H.L. Sinaratma notes, a declaration of war on the bourgeois Sinhalese Buddhist leadership of the Ceylon National Congress, who were about to inherit the state. The activist monks on the left would capitalize on the elite enterprise that was Ceylon's independence. So it was that beneath the veneer of continuity and tranquility lay very deep problems. The Ceylon National Congress was undoubtedly an elite organization and never succeeded if it had ever really attempted in becoming a mass movement that excited and mobilized the masses in the fashion of Gandhi's revitalized Indian National Congress in the 1930s. While the first cabinet that governed till Senanayake's death was multi-ethnic and multi-religious, there were no communal riots and there were no communal rights, the tide would soon turn following Senanayake's death in 1952. However, even before the populist Mr. Bandaranayake became, became Prime Minister in 1956, foreboding over the Dominion settlement would bear fruit. Starting with the Ceylon Citizenship Act of 1948 and other laws, citizenship was effectively denied to the Tamil estate workers, and this was coupled with the removal of any right to vote. Therefore, the majority of a population that numbered Nearly 780,000 in 1946 lost their ability to choose their representatives, and the courts, both domestic and the Privy Council in London, were inadequate to the task of protecting their rights. Passage of the citizenship legislation precipitated a split in the Tamil Congress, Samuel James Chelvanayagam leading a dominant group of MPs out of the Congress. Penumblum, a brilliant criminal lawyer, was unable to prevent the inequities perpetrated against the estate Tamils, under Chelvanayagam's leadership, the Federal Party came to embody the claims of constitutional Tamil nationalism, with its central aim being a federal dominion union of Ceylon through a redrafting of the Solbury Constitution. But the key motivating factor in the demise of the dominion constitution much later in the early 1970s was the evolution of Sinhalese electoral politics <coughs> that had begun under the Donamore Constitution. The Donamore period and Dear Senanayake's premiership had shown myths and rights from the ancient past become agencies of the state's idealized imagination, embodying a kind of performative potency. The centralization of the state by Bandaranaika and his successors intensified the motivation towards such an idealized imagination. These dynamics became particularly pronounced as 1956 approached. So the Official Languages Commission was set up in 1951, and it was chaired by a senior public servant, Sir Arthur Wijewardena, um, you know, very middle class, very elite member of the establishment, and uh, it was uh, established by the government with a view to its implementing the policy in official languages reached in 1944 in the State Council, which called for the establishment of both Singular and Tamil as official languages. Within a month, however, Bandaranaike and his supporters had left the United National Party and formed the Sri Lanka Freedom Party. Initially, Bandaranaike maintained a commitment to the 1944 policy, but at the 1952 election, he argued for a speedy implementation of the 1944 language policy, as opposed to Dudley Senanayake's 
gradualist approach. Douglas Senanayake had succeeded to the premiership following the death of his father in 1952. So as you can see, Sinhalese politics was evolving into very much a family affair, and it's still very much the case today. Father to daughter, to son to daughter, things like that. However, Buddhist organisations such as the Young Men's Buddhist Association advocated that English be replaced by singular only, as it commonly became termed. Their demands received support from an unlikely quarter when Sir Arthur Vijayawadana succumbed to the rising tide of Buddhist activism and in 1953 advocated singular only. Singhalese linguistic nationalism would find an unlikely advocate in the name of Solomon Bandaranaika. Bandaranaika was born into one of the most prominent and wealthy Singhalese families in the land. His father was uh, a knight and was also a privy councillor, if I remember correctly. In the 1930s, Bandaranaika advocated a federal constitution for Ceylon to accommodate the diverse identities in Ceylon. By the 1950s, his strategy changed. He said there was more political capital to be made from appealing to the Sinhalese only, just as Tamil politicians were departing the main parties to form their own ethnic ones based uh, on appeal directly to their own constituency, to their own Tamil constituency. In the 1956 election, the Sri Lanka Freedom Party-led coalition campaigned for what it called singular only and won an overwhelming majority, reducing the UMP, United National Party, now led by Sir John Kothalavala, to eight seats. While Bandaranaika found communal rhetorical, found communal rhetoric antithetical to his core liberalism, he had allowed vanity to delude him into thinking that the chauvinists he was manipulating could be tamed after obtaining power. He memorably said in a newspaper interview to a British newspaper, uh, you know, I found, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, like, you know, I found this language thing very, very useful as a political tool. Little did he know what he'd actually unleashed. When the legislation was published and Singular was declared an official language, it was designed to undermine the presence of both Tamils and Burgers in the public service. Butter and I could justify the absence of parity of status for the Singular and Tamil languages on the grounds that parity quote-unquote, would be gravely detrimental to the continuance and progress of the Sinhalese language, that it would almost imply the extinction of the Sinhalese language, implying implicitly the Sinhalese race. Other Sinhalese politicians observed that the unity of Ceylon would be undermined if there were two languages. In Hansard, you get this extraordinary litany of, kind of hysterical comments. Much of it rolls around Indians and around Tamils bringing in uh, diseases from outside and contaminating the Sinhalese body politic. In this way, Sinhalese nationalists projected Tamil speakers as an existential threat to the Sinhalese Buddhist nation. However, given his inner liberal core, once in power, Bandaranaika forged an agreement with the leader of the Tamil Federal Party, Mr. Chelvanagan, which proposed amendments to the official language bill. With reasonable use of Tamil and limited devolution of power to the northeast of the island, where Tamils and Tamil-speaking people, including the Muslims of the East, were a majority. However, following mass and monkly protests, Bandaranaike annulled the pact. These protests fashioned any concession as an affront to Sinhalese Buddhist dignity. The ensuing riots and disorder compelled the government to enact a state of emergency. Bandaranaike, not wanting to alienate his supporters by appeasing the Tamils, effectively abrogated government to Sir Oliver Gunathilaka, the Governor-General. And Gunathilaka had succeeded Lord Solbury as Governor-General in 1954. As the historian Nero Vikramasinghe argues, the 1958 riots were the first major outbreak against the Tamils and in many ways a point of no return. We can identify three key points that flowed from the Official Language Act. 
and the riots that followed, which collectively would in the 1960s create the conditions in which the Dominion settlement would give way to an even more flawed Republican settlement after 1972. Firstly, despite giving one language privileged status above others, including as the language of government and administration, even in the Tamil areas, the Constitution was judged not to have been breached. The Official Language Act was challenged in the domestic courts by a Tamil civil servant, and the matter then went to the Privy Council. The Privy Council judged on a technicality that the Act was not in breach of the Anti-Discrimination Clause, Article 28, of the Solbury Constitution. Minority rights were therefore unprotected by the courts. Secondly, with the exception of the Communist Party, no party targeted support from all communities. Thirdly, and related to the preceding point, Sri Lankan nationalism meant Sinhalese nationalism, and it has, in many ways, ever since, in the popular imaginary. The United National Party and the Sri Lankan Freedom Party would begin from this point the dangerous ethnic outbidding of the Sinhalese masses where there was little political or institutional incentive to make concessions to the Tamils. And if the concessions were made, they were robustly protested against by rival parties, by rival Sinhalese-dominated parties. Following 1956, the Tamil parties became redundant to national politics. Their failure to achieve protection for their community saw the constitutional Tamil nationalism of the Federal Party give way to more militant extra-parliamentary forces which saw no benefit in national unity. And here I have particularly the emergence of the LTT as the principal vehicle of that extra-constitutional nationalist voice. The abrogation of the Dominion Constitution in 1972 without the consent of the Tamil parties, particularly the Federal Party, would see the island spiral to a civil war in the 1980s. I'll leave it there, and as we all know, of course, in the last five, six years of recent, we know that the LTT was recently defeated in 2009, and uh, following the Rajapaksa period of government in 2015, uh, a nominally um, sort of liberal conservative administration was elected, of which constitutional reform uh, is set as a core objective in defeating the Rajapaksas in uh, in 2015 and that process is now ongoing so there's a window of opportunity now that's opened up in terms of constitutional reform um, and it's a small window that could close down at any moment if it's not fully taken advantage of by both government as well as civil society uh, groups uh, in, in the island for more griffith university podcasts go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts